Good morning, and welcome again to Westminster Presbyterian Church. My name is Caleb, and I'm the Director of Student Ministries here, and we are so glad you are here today. We have a lot to do, though. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1005. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you about a movie I loved as a small child, and you've probably seen this movie before, The Lion King. Do you remember the story? And if you don't, that's okay. It's just Hamlet. If you know Hamlet, you know The Lion King, okay? There are three main characters here in this movie. There is the king, Mufasa. His brother, Scar, who wants to be king, and his son, Simba. And Scar, in his coveting for the throne, plots against the king Mufasa to try and destroy him so that Scar can take the throne himself. And so the way he gets to the king is through his son, Simba. So one day, Simba is out playing, and Scar lures him into a gorge with thousands of wildebeest running through the gorge, and in, in the chaos, Simba needs to be rescued. And so his father jumps in, rescues him, and through the betrayal of his brother Scar, falls to his death. Now, Simba doesn't know that it was Scar's fault that his dad died, and these are the words in the aftermath. When the dust settles, Simba is sitting there just devastated as any of us would be. And these are the words that the wicked Scar lies to Simba with. The king is dead. If it weren't for you, he would still be alive. And so Simba in his grief says, what do I do? And Scar says, run away. And this is what Simba does. He flees. He runs away, tormented by grief, guilt, shame. He flees into the night. And as I was reading Hebrews and preparing for the sermon, I was thinking about this scene, and I think if we're honest, this is often the easiest and most ordinary response we have to our mistakes, to our sin, to our grief, and to our sorrow. We run, all of us, in different ways. We live in a world and we're faced with our own misdeeds in addition to those perpetrated against us. Except there's a big difference between us and Simba in this story. And the difference is this, we have actually failed. Who in here, in this room, hasn't lied, cheated, manipulated, misused, or even hurt those who we love the most? And when the dust settles around us, we find that our own consciences are tormented by our guilt and by our shame. But I've got good news for you this morning. If this is you, you are not alone. In human history, every person who's ever lived has experienced this guilt and shame except for one. And our passage this morning, morning was written to a group of people who were very similar to you and me. And what they had done to deal with their guilt and shame is they had returned to the traditions of their family. They had returned to the religious traditions of the Old Testament, but they were finding something was wrong. It wasn't working. They were turning back, but their grief, guilt, and shame was not taken care of. And so the author to the Hebrews writes to them, and he also writes this to us, and this is the correction he gives. We must rely upon the work of Jesus Christ and not our own work. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to ask, why must we rely upon the work of Jesus? And we're going to answer that in three ways. The first way is that Jesus has better access. The second way is that Jesus has better power. And the third is that Jesus has better blood. 
And this is a lot, if you've noticed, in the program, and so we're not going to read it all. We're going to break this up into three parts, and we're going to read each part before each point. So the first part we're going to read now is chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord, so let's give it our full attention. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is not my word. It is God. So let's pray. Let's ask him for help and understanding. Father, we do come to you now faced with this complicated but rich and beautiful passage, Lord. I ask that you would use my small words to explain it in big ways, Father, and that you would grip all of us with the good news. We love you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, first, point one, Jesus has better access Look with me at verse 1. Here in verse 1, the author tells us that, that the reason Jesus has better access is actually threefold. The first reason is that Jesus is a high priest. Look at verse 1 here. He says, we have such a high priest, and he's pointing to Jesus. Now, if you don't know what a high priest is, that's okay. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the one who represented the people of God to Yahweh. The high priest would offer sacrifices and would actually enter into this special place called the Holy of Holies, and he would make the sacrifice for the people's sins once a year on their behalf. But there was a problem. If the high priest wasn't purified from his own sin, the second he stepped behind this curtain into the holy place, holy, holy place, he would die. What the author here is saying is that Jesus is the great high priest, the priest of priests, and in this role, he was qualified to have access to the Father. The second reason is that in, here in verse 1, we also see Jesus is seated. He is sitting down at the right hand of God. Now, that is very strange. It would have been a strange thing for a high priest to be seated. Why? Because there was a lot of work to do. And so, of course, this means that Jesus is seated because his work is done. Jesus has completed all the work. And in the completion of his priestly work, look at where he is. He is sitting next to the one who can deal with all of our guilt and shame. He, is, he has the Father's ear. And third, we know that he has better access because he's a priest in the Lord's true tent. Now, this might be a little confusing to read in verses 2, 5, and 6. What is the true tent? Well, this would have been the tabernacle. This was the tent that the Israelites would have taken with them to worship Yahweh in, and it was extensively regulated. If you want to read all about it, you can read about it in Exodus 24. But this is the key. The Israelites would have known the tent because this tent was the place where their guilt and shame was taken care of. It was a holy place. It was a place of great hope and beauty, where God himself dwelled. 
And so this is the point of his access. Jesus has full access to God, the only one able to deal with guilt, shame, and righteousness. So, or unrighteousness. So let me see if I can um, explain this a little bit uh, more, more clearly here. So when, when I was uh, in college, I worked at a summer camp, and I absolutely loved working at the summer camp. I was a counselor, and one of the things we would do is we would go out on a camp out. And so I had to have, you know, a trusty pocket knife, and I found this, like, massive, like, six-inch knife because I thought it was cool. And I would use this knife for very important things like cutting fishing line, you know, like um, this gigantic knife, you know. Anyway, I would use it in those contexts and places, and um, most of the time, because I can't be trusted with knives, I would keep it in my camp bag. Now, the end of the summer came, and it was time to go home, and I was actually going to fly to Michigan where my family lived. And you can probably see where this is going. I, um, you know, I've got my bag. I show up to the airport an hour early. I hit the TSA checkpoint. I'm, you know, I'm smiling. I'm ready to go. I can't wait to see my family. It's been a great summer. And as I go through the, um, I don't even know, the magnets, they say, sir, your bag has been selected for a random screening. And I thought, okay, that's cool. And so, uh, you know, I sat down and I was like, this random screening is taking a long time. This is really strange because he's just going through my bag and he's like, you know, he's pulling out everything. And then finally, like he's unsheathing a sword. He pulls out this massive knife and I think, oh no, I am done. I'm totally done. I'm going to get arrested and I'm not going to go home. And uh, thankfully that didn't happen. He was really kind. He checked my bag for me, but it was a stressful day. Do you guys know how pilots get onto the plane? They don't have to go through a TSA checkpoint. They walk straight up to the gate, they scan their badge, and they're let in. This is the kind of access that the book of Hebrews is talking about here. Jesus' access to the throne of God is perfect, substantial, and totally beyond that of anyone. And so I have a diagnostic question for each of us. As we're considering the, the daily buffet of possible options and paths to deal with our guilt and shame, how do you think about your access to God? Because I think we swing between two, uh, kind of two extremes. One, some of us think in these ways, we have perfect access to God. So we, we think things like this, God is loving, and if he's loving, he'll forgive my sin, and that's fine, you know. Or maybe you'll think, you know, I'll worry about this later. It's not a big deal. Uh, my, my guilt and my shame, I'm just going to kind of put it to the side. I, I'm a good person. I, I do good stuff. Now, if, if this is your mentality, what we're effectively saying is that our guilty conscience is handled for free. And this is not connected to what the New Testament or the Old teaches about how God works. This is actually a self-created idea of God because in Romans 14, we read that each of us will give an account of himself, of his works to God. Something has to happen to our guilt. It cannot be wiped aside like a free parking ticket or, you know, it can't, we can't just check that bag. We need someone with access to God to handle our guilt and sin. Now, the other extreme is, you know, here's perfect access. The other extreme is we have no access. And this is the kind of language of, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my past. And there's nothing that could heal my guilt. 
There's other variants of this. You know, the God of the Bible is unloving. How could he do such a thing? Or it could also be, we don't need access to God because there is no God. And this is a very ser- serious and, and difficult place to be in. And if this, if this is where you are, if your picture of God is fierce, stern, and unforgiving, I have good news for you. Because of the access Jesus has to the Father, these words from Psalm 16 are true for you and me. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Both of these approaches to our access are unbalanced because they both place the guilty one at the center of the access. And what the book of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying our access is not dependent on our quality, our ability, or our works. It is dependent on the access Jesus has. But access alone can't handle a guilty conscience, and so we we need more. And this is our next point, that Jesus has better power. Let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. One of my seminary professors would always say this, that the New Testament without the old is like a kite without a tail. And this is what's really happening here in Hebrews chapter 9. You and I, we can't understand the work of Jesus without a picture of the Old Testament. And Hebrews shows us that the work Jesus did rests upon the pattern of the Old Testament. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 1. He references here this idea of the first covenant. Now, if you go back through chapter 8, this is the eighth time the word covenant has been mentioned in chapters 8 and 9. And that is significant because covenant is the primary way that God relates to his people. It's, it's an agreement between God and humanity um, with promised blessings for upholding the covenant and promised curses for violating it. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the new covenant is an improvement of the previous in such a way that it's power to handle guilt, shame, and unrighteousness is so much better than you can imagine. Two examples of this briefly. Look at verse 2. He talks about this bread of the presence and the table. In Leviticus 24, we see what that is. That is 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the table by the priests weekly. And they they would bake it, they would put it on the table, and then they would eat the bread at the end of the week for their nourishment. It nourished them physically, and it was a sign of this covenant of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this ritual had to be repeated every week. Look now at verse 5. We get mentioned here of something called the mercy seat, which the mercy seat was, if you've ever seen, you know, Indiana Jones or something, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And this was a gold, um, beautiful seat, and on it yearly, the high priest would actually offer a blood sacrifice to the Lord. He would sprinkle the blood of bulls and lambs on this. And this, too, had to be repeated on a yearly basis. 
Now, why are we talking about this thousands of years ago tradition? This is why. Our guilt is a big deal. In fact, I would argue, and the Bible argues, that our guilt is a bigger deal than any of us actually realize, myself included. In fact, our guilt is so great, it needs so much power to be taken care of that only blood can take care of it. This old covenant mentioned in Hebrews was not powerful enough to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Only Jesus was powerful enough, the only person with the power to stop these rituals from being repeated once and for all. Now, I think a few weeks ago, Jonathan Garrett let you all know that I'm a huge coffee nut. Um, and so I'm going to, you know, take the opportunity now to talk about coffee. Uh, prior to working in a coffee shop, I, I went through life disappointed because I would make coffee in the morning, and when I finished, I would pour out my coffee pot, I would rinse it out, I would wash it with Dawn dish soap because Dawn cleans the oil off of literally baby ducklings. If it can do that, it can clean the coffee oils off my coffee pot. And then I would look at it, and it would still have a brown coffee tint. And I would, I would smell it, and it still smelled like musty coffee oil, and I'd be so frustrated. So I'd try it again, and just never could clean off the coffee oils. Well, when I started a job at a coffee shop, I was introduced to something new, something better than Dawn, a magical coffee pot cleaner called Kafitza. And I don't know who makes this, but I do know it's effective because what I did, what you do is you, you put it like half a teaspoon in the bottom of your coffee pot, you fill it up with boiling water, and then you just pour it out and all of those coffee oils go with it and you've got a perfectly clear coffee pot. The power to restore the perfected coffee pot was in my hands. And this is the point of this silly story. Jesus' new covenant was so much better than the old that it was just like this dawn and coffee cleaner. It has the power to perfect our consciences. There is no longer a need for all the types and the shadows of the ceremonial law. And so my question to you and to me this morning is what would it take to purify your conscience? How strong would the cleaner need to be? The Hebrews in this passage are turning back to these traditions and religious laws. Now, mo most of us probably don't do that, but I was, you know, I was thinking, what traditions do we often turn back to for this conscience cleansing? And I, you know, I think here's a few cultural narratives I've heard a lot. The first one I've heard is this. I feel bad about my guilt. I feel bad about the things I've done wrong, so I try harder next time. The Ava brothers sum this one up well. They say, maybe I don't have to be good, but I can try to be at least a little better than I've been so far. This is saying, when I do something that hurts me or others, I need to focus and try harder next time. But there's an issue with this. Trying harder next time doesn't undo the misdeeds of last time. We need something more powerful. Another narrative I've heard is this. Sure, I I've done bad things, but look where I am now. The ends justify the means. I think this is one that often leads us to things like workaholism, where many of us are tempted to, you know, think like this. If I could just finish this next project, or get this next promotion, or finish this paper for school, or get featured in a paper, podcast, or magazine, then I'll finally feel good enough about myself that perhaps my guilty conscience will be undone. Sure, might have done a few things I regret, but the ends justify the means. 
And I'm not trying to say that success is bad, but I am saying that success ill-achieved is a blight because it will never heal a guilty conscience. And now the third thing, this is a back to the Lion King. This is the, the narrative that says, I don't worry about my guilt. You know, no worries, man. Hakuna Matata. It's all going to pan out in the end. But then you find yourself years down the road with a trail of burned out people and relationships behind you through your guilt avoidance. Because now the, the, the onus, the measure of fixing your guilt is on the ones who you love the most or who love you the most. You have shifted it off of yourself. And so, may I this morning humbly suggest this to all of us. None of these cultural narratives have the power to perfect a guilty conscience. Only the work of Jesus Christ has the power to clean and perfect our guilty consciences. But we need more than access, and we need more than power. We need a way. We need a means. And so this is the last thing. Jesus has better blood. Read with me um, verse 11 through 15. But when Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. This is the means the means is maybe unexpected because it is this, blood. In the Bible, blood is special. It is life. In fact, the Israelites were forbidden to eat blood with the flesh of the animals they ate because blood was so special and significant that, that the Lord um, put this circle around it in the way that they approached it. And this meant that the sacrificial system pointed to the weight and heaviness of sin to be so significant that only blood can undo it, a life for a life. And there's two parts he emphasizes of Jesus' blood here that make it better than all the blood that came before. It was first eternal. Look with me at verse 14. Jesus, in his divinity, is eternal. And scholars are divided on actually what this phrase here, eternal spirit, means. But um, uh, Mike Kruger argues this phrase is actually referencing back to chapter 7, 24. And it says this, that Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And I do agree. I think this makes sense. In the context of what the author is saying, Jesus' blood is better because it's eternal. Jesus entered once and for all into the holy place. His sacrifice is guaranteed forever. And the second thing the author emphasizes here is his perfect blood. Look again in verse 14. Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. The, the quality of the bulls and lambs and animal sacrifice were important. And what the, what the author here is doing is he's lifting up Jesus' blood as perfect and without any issue. Jesus, we know, was tempted in every way, but never sinned. In fact, 
Jesus could have entered the Holy of Holies on his own and not died. He could have strolled right in. So this is what this means for us. Jesus is the only person in history to be equipped in this way. No one else had blood that could wash the blood from the hands of God's people. And so I want all of us to to remember this this morning. Our guilt and shame is real. Our experience of it as significant is legitimate. It's a weighty and heavy thing. But I also want to impress this upon all of us, we don't know the half of it. Our sin is so much bigger and weightier than any of us could ever realize. And this really shines a light on how much Jesus wants you and me. That he would use his unique access, his unique power, and his blood to do what he needed to purify our guilty consciences. And this is what he needed to do. He needed to walk into the Holy of Holies and he needed to die. His blood needed to be the blood offered up on the altar. But there's more at stake here than just clean consciences. And this is really exciting. Do you remember the word I said a few minutes ago, covenant? I emphasize this word covenant because covenant is used in the Bible to to communicate this central truth. God desires relationship with his people. That's what a covenant is. It's a relationship with his people. And so this means that if your faith is in Christ, your conscience is more than just clear. You are in relationship with the God of the universe, and even more so, you're part of the family. Think back to what we started with. We started with the Lion King. We started with with Simba and Scar and Mufasa. And you remember what Scar said? He said, the king is dead. If it weren't for you, he would still be alive. The message of Hebrews is more like the end of this movie. When Simba, in his grief and pain, he's a teenager now, he's failed and he's grieving, and in the midst of this, he hears the words of his father, and this is what his father says to him. Remember who you are. You are my son. You are the true king. And this motivates him to take up his kingship. And I've got good news. In Jesus Christ, we hear even better words than these. We hear these words, not remember who you are, but remember whose you are. You are not alone. You are a child of God, and you are in the family. And what do families do? They eat together. This is Communion Sunday, and it's a family meal. In verse 15, where we ended, it tells us that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. Now, that might sound familiar to you because this new covenant relationship that we've been hearing of all morning is the same covenant which Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, taking up the cup of wine, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The perfect blood of Christ means we no longer have to make ourselves right. He already has. Think back with me to the, to the 12 loaves of bread on the table in the holy place which the priests would eat. In communion, this is actually reversed. Instead of the priests feasting on the bread, it is the people of God feasting on the bread which is the body of the great high priest. Do you see the shift? 
This is what communion is, a feast where we enter into God's presence unashamed with perfected consciences into the Holy of Holies. We have a meal with him and we're nourished by him in a real and substantial way. So when we take communion, we are not just remembering what Jesus did for us. We are actually believing that in that moment, we are communing with God. Now, we don't believe the bread or the wine turns into anything, but we do believe that something real is happening beyond just remembering. There is a real spiritual nourishment going on here. And this is good news for all of us, and this is why. If you're burdened by a guilty conscience, the message of the gospel is this. Come and eat. There is nothing the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. When you have faith in Jesus, no unrighteous deed, thought, or act can put you outside of his presence. And if you do not believe and don't have faith in Christ's work, let me ask you this. How do you handle your your guilty conscience? Can you do it on your own? If the answer is no, let me encourage you today to take Jesus, because when our consciences are tormented by guilt and shame, we must look to Jesus' works, to his access, his power, and his blood, because he alone can save us from our sin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we do, we come to you uh, honored and overwhelmed, Father. Who are we that you are mindful of us, Father? Who are we that you would want to be in relationship with us? But Father, this is the promise that we see here, that Jesus, you are our advocate. You have appeared on our behalf on high, and that you have borne all of our grief, all of our guilt, and all of our shame. Father, you have cleansed us from our sin through the once and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, be with us now as we take communion. In your name we pray. Amen.